You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. I cannot believe we are in August. Christmas is right around the corner, and I'm just thinking, where the heck did 2020 go? But anyways, let's get into this podcast. I'm super excited. And first of all, before we start, I wanted to thank our sponsor, PISA. If you haven't heard about them, they're a great organization for the OFS market. And if you want to find out a little bit more about them and get a membership, visit www.pisa.org. They provide training. They help in anything related with ESG, government affairs, diversity and inclusion, HSC, just tons of really great stuff that they can help you with. So, yeah. Yes, thank you, Pisa. And we're really excited about today. This is going to be one of our first operators from the VP level on the podcast, Bill Langan, which he's currently the VP of Exploration for North America and Brazil for Shell. Bill believes in unleashing the talent of every individual is the key to success. He's been directly involved in opportunities that span the energy life cycle for Shell, from exploration through production, operations, and abandonment. With 17 years of experience working in the deep water of Gulf of Mexico and Brazil, the onshore United States, Oman, and Australia, while also contributing to other projects around the world. We just can't wait to share his story. Hey, Bill, how are you? I'm doing great today. Thanks, guys, for having me on, and I'm super excited to participate. It's such a great podcast to add that personality to the industry, so anxious to have the opportunity to contribute. Thank you. All right, well, let's start sharing your oil field story. Tell us a little bit about your background. What was life like growing up as Bill and how did you end up in this beautiful industry? Yeah, it's an amazing industry and I'm so excited to have the opportunity to share, share the story of, it's not just my career in the industry, but it's really, I'll call it my family's career in, in, in the industry because of the you know diverse places we've lived. So my wife, Jennifer, and my two boys, Tyler and, and, and Trace, have had the opportunity to share this wonderful career with me. So maybe as we go, we'll touch on that a bit more. But for me, I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania during the 1980s and and 1990s in a a pretty depressed region. It was an old coal mining region up until, say, the 1960s. And then some manufacturing emerged, but that moved away in, in the 80s with NAFTA. And so there wasn't a lot of economic stimulation, I'll say, as, as I was coming through. And I had single mom, two younger siblings at home. So, you know, times were tough, but I was really lucky enough to have the strong support of my, my grandfather. My grandparents lived not far from us. And he really drove into me a sense of discipline and, and, and dedication and that I could accomplish anything, which I think came through his his childhood. So... He lost his father at the age of 10 in the late 1930s, and he had a mom and two sisters at home, and that was at a time when there weren't a lot of women mostly didn't work, and he told me a couple stories in particular that always stuck with me. He would tell me that weekly he had to take his his wagon down to the government food bank and collect their government-issued cheese and, and peanut butter and sort of wheel it down the street, and he sort of used that as inspiration. He said, I never want to have to depend on someone else again, and I'm going to work hard enough and improve myself to the point where I can take care of my family and and make sure I can support my loved ones in that way. And so from the time I was really young, from both the school point of view and the athletics point of view, he really pushed me to have that drive and that discipline and told me that if you work hard, you can accomplish anything. He did work hard, and, and he ultimately, as he finished high school, 
in northeastern Pennsylvania, he was offered a scholarship to play football at Penn State. But unfortunately, he had to turn it down because he felt he had to be able to still support his mother and two sisters. So he went into the army and sent his paychecks home every couple of weeks to support his family rather than go off and have the more maybe glorious lifestyle of playing football at a place like Penn State. And he was a paratrooper through the Korean War and then ultimately came back to the U.S. and had several jobs since and, and made a you know, really nice lifestyle for him, himself and his family. But, you know, never lost that sense of really drive and, and dedication and hard work and really was my inspiration as I was as growing up. And I grew up playing football and, and wrestling and, you know, with his support, became good at both as well as a good student. And I was fortunate enough to get noticed by Princeton University for both the academic side, but also the athletic side. And, you know, for me, when first had the coaches come to see me, I was a bit surprised. A person like me from, you know, a very, you know, middle class at best family in nowhere, Pennsylvania, had the opportunity to go to such a prestigious place. I just didn't, never linked those two opportunities. But it turned out that there was really good financial aid programs, and they must have seen something in me that I didn't see in, in myself at the time. So I was lucky enough ultimately to get accepted and go there. But that was just the start of it. Yeah. It certainly wasn't an easy transition from, you know, a fairly, you know, suburban, rural Pennsylvania town to a place like that. And it was a struggle at first. You know, I think the academics were nothing like I had previously been exposed to. And I almost had to learn how to learn, if that mm -hmm. makes sense to you guys. And it wasn't until I found geology during my second year there that I really fell in love with the academic side of things. And decided that that's what I, I love to do and, and wanted to do. That ultimately led me to an internship with Schlumberger in Midland, Texas in the summer of 98, which is a whole other experience <laughs> and beginning of my oil field career through that experience. Wow, that says so much about your family and your grandfather. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I mean, just to hear what he had to go through at such a young age, having to go and get food for the family. I mean, having that kind of, you know, support in your family and like somebody to look up to, I'm sure was just very inspiring. Absolutely was. So, and then you also mentioned that you got your first internship in 98. And I know that there was the oil market probably wasn't the best during that time, and it was towards another downturn. And I'm sure with the struggles and stuff that you heard from your grandfather, you were probably able to overcome a situation like that. But how did you deal with that? Just getting into it, you know, and, and knowing what was going to happen, how did you deal with the downturn? And then what did you end up doing? Because I think last time we talked, you said something about getting a PhD during this time. Yeah, so I really enjoyed the internship with Slumberjay. It was a fantastic experience. And I love geology, so I certainly wanted to work in something related to earth sciences and the oil and gas field. But when I was in Midland that summer, I think oil went down to like $9 a barrel. So if you think we have it tough now, think about extended duration and at $9 a barrel. And two-thirds of the people I worked with got laid off, and it really touched me. I mean, I think just to see what they and their families went through with this cycle. I thought, ooh, when I have a family, I don't want to be as subjected to the ups and downs as maybe that far end of the spectrum in the service sector there. But I really wanted to work in, in geology. And, and so when I went back to school, I started talking to some of the professors and I said, well, go to grad school and get in, you know, a degree so you can maybe get into an operator of environment and have a bit more insulation from that very pointed end. Again, coming from where I came from, never thought of going and get a master's or anything or PhD even. So I said, okay, that sounds great. And, and so I started looking into it. And when I looked into it, it's like, oh, 
if you try to, you know, get into the master's programs, it's another couple years of full tuition. There's not as much financial aid. But if you can get into a PhD program, you can get that paid for. But this was a question of economics, right? So, I mean, you know, if I can work hard and, you know, get the grades and get the test scores to justify admission to a PhD program, and I can get my advanced degree paid for by either doing research or teaching, and I loved helping other students learn. So that was great for me. And ultimately, so yeah, I began studying for the graduate exams and ultimately got accepted to Cornell into a program there where I had the opportunity to teach for about half the time I was there and then as a research associate for half the time I was there. So ended up studying earthquakes in Tibet and the Himalayas. So super exciting project. And while I was there, Shell was recruiting and I had two friends that had gone to Shell after their master's after two years, really enjoyed it. So during my third and fourth year, I kept in touch and said, okay, you know, I think this sounds like something for me. So summer of 2003, I, I, I drove from Ithaca, New York to New Orleans, opened the door, was shocked at the heat and humidity. <laughs> but from then on, I think I've loved everything about my time in the industry. That's awesome. So that's how you kind of got from PhD into Shell. Cool. So I remember when we first spoke, you mentioned that, you know, throughout the first couple of years at Shell, you found through a data processing software that you guys were using, you kind of started analyzing the data sets and you realized that, you know, something was wrong with the software, I think, or the equations yeah. to come out with the results. First of all, like, you're a genius, like, you know, like looking at a software and saying, the equations are wrong here, you know. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? But also more mm. importantly, how do you bring such things up to an employer when mm. you're questioning their yeah. systems, right? Yeah. yeah, so I guess for me, the experience of actually doing the PhD just makes you dive into the theory of things. And you're sort of required to not just, you know, go through a standard analysis. You actually have to go into the theory and maybe make some changes or tweaks to it. And I don't think I appreciated the time how much insight that would give you into the different workflows, maybe in an industrial setting. Mm -hmm. And so when I came into Shell, my natural tendency was to not just say, go and apply the standard workflow, but then say, hey, could we do this better? Could we do this differently? Or whatever it is. So I started always sort of diving more deeply into, you know, not just the workflow, but what was the software behind the workflow? What did it assume and things? And could I actually help everyone by making improvements to that? And the one story that I think is probably pretty funny, at the time, everybody was starting to get these, you know, high-end computers on their desktop. They were like twenty dollars or $30,000 just compute so you could do data processing on the fly. And we were testing some new software that allowed you to see sort of the seismic ray paths on top of the seismic data while you were interpreting it. And so I was testing out a release that was going to happen the following week. And as I was looking at it, I was like, oh, something doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right. The angles aren't what I expected. And so I said, ah, I need a protractor. And so I went to our supply room. There's, there's no protractors. I mean, I'm, my kids will probably have no idea what a protractor is. And so I'm like, okay, I need to go find a protractor. So I go out of the office building, which was in downtown Houston at the time. And I find the nearest like Staples or, you know, whatever it was. And I, and I go in and I it took me there like three in a small box somewhere because no one uses protractors anymore. And I go back and then I tape some tracing paper to the screen. And all of a sudden, I'm putting the seismic up. I'm tracing angles. I'm using a protractor like we all did in middle school okay. to measure angles. The exploration VP walks by and he looks into my office and he's like, 
what are you doing? <laughs> you know, the high-end workstation that, you know, sitting on your desk isn't good enough. And I said, I don't think it's right. And he looks at me sideways. He said, what do you mean you don't think this is right? And I said, well, you know, it just doesn't feel like the results it's giving me match with what my intuition would be. And so I did some more digging and I sent, you know, I went and scanned my tracing paper. I sent it off to the guys in the coding lab and whatever. And it turns out they had flipped like a sine and a cosine in the equations that were giving some, some strange results. And this was going to go out to the company globally the following crazy. week. <laughs> and, you know, so for me, I think because of the training, it came naturally. But I think your question on how do you sort of question the way things are done I think if it's in service of improving the business and allowing everyone to deliver better, not in service of making me look good or making someone else look bad, and you frame you know, the observation that you have, and then even you, know, you don't know everything about why it could be done better and you want more input, I think that goes over very well. Because, you know, Shell, we have this thing called enterprise first, which means we're in service of the business first. So if I'm going to introduce something and it's enterprise first, not me first, or not mm -hmm. making someone mm -hmm. else look bad, it gives you a bit of an in to have that conversation. And then I think what I've learned since then, though, through being wrong many times is I'm not always right. And, <laughs> and so if I do give an observation, I also get input from others, say, what am I missing? And what could also be happening here besides my very narrow view of, you know, what things look like. But that was, yeah, certainly an experience I'll never forget. And um, I'm guessing most of my geophysicists now last used a protractor 20 years ago. So <laughs> it is what it is. But, um. Well, I think you're right. It's really all in the approach that you take mm -hmm. when you do, you know, go to the, your company and tell them kind of your thought. And it's how it's your tone and it's how you, you say it and how you don't make it about you, but you make it about how you're going to better whatever situation you may be in. And I think that's exactly what you did. And you were right this time. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly not always the case. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So we know throughout your career, obviously, you've been more in technical roles at, at first. Mm. And then you were offered a leadership role, which mm. if I recall, you actually turned down at first, and then you went back and I think you talked to your wife and then <laughs> and you went back to the to your employer and just said, all right, I'll take the role. Can you talk about that experience? And then kind of how you when about thinking about that at first to then when you changed your mind and, and decided to take it on? Yeah, that's great. So you'll see a recurring theme here where there's this again is the family career and how we manage this together. So yeah, I spent, you know, I worked so hard to get the undergraduate degree and then the PhD all in a technical field, right? So I had this deep identity of coming through that way and then spent seven years doing, you know, pretty technical geophysics work. And so I think it was in 2009, at the time, my general manager came to me and she said, oh, the head of exploration is, is moving from the Netherlands to Houston and we're looking for a business advisor for him. And I said, oh, what does a business advisor do? <laughs> you know, I don't really know. And so they said, well, you shadow them and you learn how you translate the technical data into business justifications you might summarize longer proposals so they can get you know, across them more quickly. You might make some of their presentations. If they're doing an external event, you'll help them prep in general. So I thought to myself, oh, that's just, just not me. I'm a, I'm a technical person. I don't have an MBA. I'm not ultimately see myself doing those sorts of roles because I've put in this work to be technical. And so I said, thank you for 
flattering me, but you know, this isn't something where I think I can most benefit the company or something like that. Yeah. And so, you know, she walked out of my office. I felt good that she had considered me. So I called my wife and I said, you know, you won't believe what they just asked me to do. They wanted me to take this, you know, role that's, you know, completely non-technical, da da da. And there was a bit of <laughs> silence and she was like, March back over to Linda's office, beg for <laughs> forgiveness. Tell her you're very, very sorry and say you'd very much like to have that interview because it's, you know, you, you weren't thinking clearly at the time. <laughs> and I said, yes, dear. Like, okay, so let's talk about why here. You know, what are you saying? And they're like, well, they see an opportunity in you to be more than the best geophysicist in, you know, your work group or even Houston or whatever. They think you have the opportunity to take a more substantial role in the company. And I said, me? You know, I'm, I just look at seismic, I make it better for everyone. And yeah. they mm-hmm. said, no, no, yeah, yes, you, you can have the opportunity to impact. And, and I said, Oh, well, I, you know, I never thought of it that way. That was, you know, I was so focused on making sure I was doing the best. And if I reflect on that, I think I developed this self identity because I worked so hard to get good at that. Mm-hmm. And letting it go was scary. I think, you know, letting go of these deeply held identities we create for ourselves to seize an opportunity doesn't always you know, show up as obvious. And so it took a couple other people that I really valued pointing it out to me. So one, my general manager and two, you know, my wife to point this out that, hey, you know, this is a really good thing. So ultimately got the interview and and got the job. And from then on, you know, light bulbs going off left and right on how we translate the technical aspects of what we do into the the business justifications. And it turns out to be, you know, life changing when you get an opportunity to step into, you know, leadership and management roles, ultimately, because it opens up then more of the world had the opportunity to visit since. So definitely. Well, shout out to your wife, because, you know, you're here now because of her. (laughs) We'll be looking at some seismic data. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) But yeah, no, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast will relate because I think a lot of times we do get these opportunities that we're like, me like I'm not cut out for this what do you see in me and sometimes we don't see these things that others people do and I think it's always that partner's job to be like of course you you deserve this you know and then you're like oh yeah you need some sort of prep sometimes but that's really Mm -hmm. cool that she did that so quick one so once you transitioned over into more of a leadership management role versus Mm -hmm. more of like the technical career that you had in the past now you're starting to manage people you're a leader you have people working under you what kind of management role did you realize that you know, was your new identity? And how did you find managing different people? And give us a little bit of kind of like your leadership role. Yeah, my view of the leader I want to be has absolutely evolved over time. I think many of us that have the opportunity to start into leadership roles are chosen because we're kind of the best of our existing work group. You know, so usually our maybe our boss leaves or one of the bosses in the adjacent groups leaves. So we get a chance to step into that role. And, and that's sort of was my first leadership experience. Another ex, an exploration group, I stepped up to lead my peers. And I think at that time, you feel the need to, you know, show your skill, show your prowess. And instead of maybe seeking to learn and so from others, at first, you want to be the leader that everybody expects, not the leader that everybody needs. Mm-hmm. And I think people expect you to take charge and do this and that. And, you know, I think I started that way for maybe the first year. And then I quickly realized that, that was a downward spiral because the more I tried to do, the more I had to do. Mm. But the more I could enable my team to do, the less I had to do <laughs> and, and the less crazy my life was. So pretty quickly, I said, my leadership, I'm going to be the ultimate enabler of people. And so from about a year into that role, I said, I'm going to 
spend as much time with each, each individual as possible and figure out what makes them tick, what their hopes and dreams are, how can I do the best to unleash their talent? And, and, and that works well when you're on a small team. So that was a single team, of say 10 people. Mm-hmm. As the roles get bigger, it's a bit harder to do that. And I think, you know, I had that job for maybe three, three years and then came back to Houston with a group of, say, 80, and then went to Oman with a group of 200, and then went to Australia with a group of 2,000. And then certainly you can't, you know, get to know everyone in a group of nearly 2,000 staff and contractors, half of which are in the field. And I had what I would consider a, a bit of a life-changing and, and career-changing experience in, in Australia. So we were definitely evolving safety culture in Australia. I think Australians have a very can-do attitude. Things will be all right. And don't always like to admit when we're struggling. And during a particularly difficult time, we had had six or seven really significant safety incidents over about a three-week period. We had a cell phone tower fall on its side while someone was while they were building it. It almost fell on two people, which could have killed them. We had a really significant dropped object on a rig. But the most severe is we had had a water tanker on a dirt road tip on its side. And the driver luckily only separated his shoulder. But obviously, if it had rolled, it could have been significantly worse. And so I was really struggling. I was the GM of the asset at the time. And all these different things were occurring in the different divisions. So they didn't really see and feel it. It only came up to me. And I, and I thought to myself, but I'm a geophysicist. I don't know how to yeah. tell a gas plant operator how to do better. I don't know how to tell a rig hand to do better. I don't know how to tell a truck driver to do better. And for three or four days, this was all that was on my mind. And so one day I went in and I said to my team, this can't go on. And none of them had the cumulative effect that I had because it was so dispersed. And I said, so we're going to stand down this afternoon at two. And that was like six hours across the asset, all 2000 people. And they said, okay, what are you going to say? And I said, I haven't figured that out yet. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't know. So I went and I locked myself in a a tiny room for a couple hours. And and I thought, okay, what can I actually do? Not an expert in anything to help here. And it just, just came to me. They need to know that I care about their safety first and foremost about anything else. And they need to be empowered to take their safety into their own hands and the hands of their team more than anything else. So actually, I don't need to tell them what to do. I need to empower them to do things the safest way possible. So I worked through and we came up with three, three principles that everybody could see themselves in all around safety. So I felt okay about it. I had a couple trusted allies that I used as sounding boards before the call. And so then we had this call in the afternoon. It was seven minutes. And at times it got quite emotional for me because of the potential impact on people and their families. And at, at seven minutes, we said, okay, back to work tomorrow. But, you know, all of you are empowered to work as safely as possible and take however long it takes and a couple other things. And within a couple of days, you know, a couple hundred feedback notes saying that was the most sincere leadership approach to safety that people had ever heard. And they actually felt that we truly cared about their going home to their families safe every single day. And so for me, as I was sort of reflecting on that, I just did some Googling around care and I came across a quote from Maya Angelou. It says, actually, most people will forget what you say to them. A lot of people will even forget if you've done something for them, but people will never forget how you make them feel. Mm-hmm. And this chemical reaction around feelings inside will ingrain a positive or negative reaction, depending on how you make them feel that even if they don't remember what it actually was. 
and so from then on, I've become very explicit around trying to make people feel cared for when we engage them, and especially the field staff in, in this space. And for me, from then on, I've decided I want to be the leader where when you've left an interaction for me, you know that I truly care about your safety and your ability to do your job in the best possible way. And it's my job to make that happen. And so very explicit around the interactions in that space. And for me, it's come over you know, several assignments and growing in scope to try to figure out how I do that most effectively across different groups. That is such a great story. I'm so glad you shared that with us. What I really like about it is in the beginning, yeah, you had a smaller team, which yes, it's easier to go one-on-one with them. Mm. But when you have a massive team, like 2000 people doing something like you did, which is a stand down, everybody has to listen. Everybody stop doing what they're doing and doing a short seven minute, which means everybody's attention span is listening for those seven minutes Mm. and to touch them in a way that you couldn't do otherwise. I mean, I could imagine they probably still remember that today which mm. is probably why it was so impactful. It's amazing how something so small like that can change people and also change their perception on the company. So that was really great. And I'm sure that's another reason why there was a time when you were actually in Oman. And I remember you told us about when we first, when we first spoke with you. And you said there was a woman who you were working, I think she was working under you. And she was taking on a lot of work and it was her quality of work-life balance was, was suffering. Mm. And we know just working in oil and gas alone, that a lot of people deal with this and they, get, they come to like a breaking point in their career. Yeah. What advice do you have for those who find themselves currently in that place? And what advice did you give to her? Yeah. So this woman was one of our best geologists and one of our best performers. And I give her fantastic credit because in a culture in the Middle East to come through and become, you know, what is, you know, now she's got a role, which is essentially the chief ge- exploration geologist for Petroleum Development Oman, a company of 8,000 people, is a fantastic accomplishment. But what we had, uh, she was clearly talented. And I think a lot of people run into the trap of if I'm good, to prove I'm better, I'm going to take on more. I'm going to just keep taking on and I can deliver more. I can have, you know, service more people. I can do these sorts of things. And what we saw from her as she took on more, she started to miss some deadlines. And then she started to quality of her work would decrease and it would come not quite to the same level. Mm. And even though we were giving her the feedback, I think at first she thought, oh, I'll be fine in the end here because I'll deliver my normal really good work. But she was never able to dig herself out of the commitments she made, nor would she be you know, honest with herself and her stakeholders that she wasn't going to be able to deliver on the mm. timeline. So the project suffered and things like that. So ultimately, at the end of the year, we gave her her lowest performance rating she had ever had, even though we knew her underlying potential was much higher than others around her. But in that year, it just wasn't up to her usual fantastic work. And she was really down for a couple of months after that. But at the same time, we coached her on this is the why. This is what we saw from you last year that resulted in what we did. And here's what we think we can help you with doing better. So things around project management, being really clear stakeholder timelines, and being very honest with yourself mm-hmm. on what workload you can handle and still deliver up to your own, you know, personal and in and, and our company standards. Because, you know, her personal brand was beginning to become affected through this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and people were having less 
faith in her ability to deliver. And so it was really important that she was honest with herself in this space too, so that, and she's absolutely more than recovered and then superstar now, and we're all very proud of her, but it sometimes takes a bit of a dip and again, maybe others helping you mm-hmm. emerge even stronger through a challenging time. So, yeah. I think a lot of people kind of see themselves in that where, you know, you're, and I mean, I think it happens to everyone. We kind of go through a cycle at work. Sometimes we're performing really well and we kind of, we're in that momentum of keeping up with, you know, beating yourself every year. And then there's a point where you have so much on your plate, you don't say no to things. And then of course your performance is going to slide a little bit. So Mm -hmm. I definitely, I think a lot of people kind of relate to that. Quick question on diversity and inclusion within Shell. I know you guys are a big leader in this. You promote it very much so throughout all social medias. I've always seen Shell as you know, a leader in, in this space. Can you share a little bit about what you guys are doing to move the needle in 2020 on diversity and inclusion? Sure. So being a global company, we're privileged to be able to pull from a global community in the workforce. And I've had the opportunity to be on teams. If there's 10 people, there's eight different ethnicities or backgrounds on those group of 10 teams. So in some ways, I've sort of become to expect this, right? <laughs> and, and have those diverse conversations. For me, yeah, we absolutely are very thoughtful around making sure we're developing people and bringing, you know, the more outward traits of race, gender, ethnicity, disablement, all into the discussion on how we coach and, and promote people. And then trying to be more cognizant of the less obvious uh, traits around, you know, religion, sexual orientation, and all those things to make sure also that we drive true inclusion in the discussions. Because to me, you know, diversity is something that you can kind of measure through statistics, but it's inclusion that truly enables outstanding performance. Because the problems we're facing are really hard. I mean, as an industry, if it was easy, other people would have already done it. And we wouldn't go through these ups and downs. So we need to be able to have everyone unleash their talent every single day and feel free to bring them whole selves into that conversation. And if for any reason you feel held back from doing that, I'm losing, the company is losing there. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I really try to focus my attention on making sure that everyone feels deeply included in the conversation. And, you know, I don't care you know, what your specialty is, if you don't understand the problem we're working on, or you don't understand why we're doing something, let's bring it in, let's have a conversation. So, you know, our, our finance manager absolutely needs to be asking questions around the geology on the prospect if she doesn't understand it. And mm-hmm. feel free to do so, because maybe we're so deep in the details, we're missing something. Mm-hmm. Even with some of the expertise we have, we don't get everything. And, and it's that ability for people to really bring themselves, that's crucial, I think. So... And I'd encourage all leaders to do the same. I absolutely feel we make the best decisions when that true inclusion is there. I really like that you touched on inclusion because you're right. With diversity, it's very easy to say, oh, we'll look at my numbers. But how do those feel inside the organization? Do they feel included? Are they included? And are they even going to stick around? Because if if your numbers are good, but they don't feel included, then they're probably not going to be here next year. So I really, really like that you said that because that's the first time I think I've heard somebody really say like it's the inclusion part. Hmm. One thing that we have noticed that a lot of companies struggle with is that promoting within Hmm. to have more diversity inclusion, but maybe not having the ability yet for that role that maybe they're being promoted to. Hmm. How do you 
stop that cycle within a company where you're not just trying to hit those numbers, but you're mm. really providing, you know, the right people in those positions? It's a great question. And I think one of the key elements that I've really tried to turn my mind to, if you look at a lot of job descriptions in the oil and gas industry, it'll say, okay, we need 15 years of experience operating in this environment, da, 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 da. Well, you're only going to get the same thing you've always had. If you look for the people that have that 15 or 20 years experience in oil and gas and this and that. So I think it's really important for us, particularly as leaders, to open our minds to, it's not the experience I need, it's the commitment, the ability to learn, the delivery, the relationships. And then we can get really, you know, driven, intelligent people to apply those to the problems we have. And so what I really look for are the, you know, more the softer pieces combined with, you know, maybe some basics of the oil and gas industry Mm -hmm. to bring those to the problems we have. Because for me, otherwise, my talent pool is getting more and more limited as people retire, right? And as, as people with that amount of experience go. So I want really driven, motivated people that want to learn. And, you know, I just don't see the need to have had 20 years doing this or 25 years doing that. We have experts in the fields that can complement the leadership or the management in that level. So mm-hmm. that, that's one element is really focusing, I think, on the more integration skills, the leadership skills, and the real drive to learn. But then when we do bring people in that we perceive as maybe having some gaps, we can do that, but let's support them. Let's understand (laughs) what those areas are and make sure and be be open about it. I think, you know, some of the time when when I've seen this not go well, it's because we kind of throw them into the fire and expect them, you know, to come out unscorched. Well, we knew from the beginning there were some issues. What did we do as leaders to support their development into the role. Because one of my philosophies is I want to bring someone into a role that can about do half the job and develop into half the job. Because mm. if I bring in someone that can nail it from day one, they're going to be bored in a year. Mm-hmm. Right? And so my philosophy when I bring people in is really, okay, let's talk about the part of the job I'm 100% confident you can nail. But then what are the few key elements where you can really you know, further develop into the role and make sure that you know we support you in that, those elements. I like that. And I think that's what's important too is when a lot of people do get into a new role and like you said, you know, they still need that development is a lot of times it slacks in the sense that no one follows up on the training, on the coaching, on the improvement of that employees to, you know, fulfill to the best role that they can be in. So I think sometimes it's good as employees to advocate for yourself. And if you are in that space and, you know, people may have dropped the ball because, you know, everybody's kind of running around trying to take care of their own career. It's okay to ask and say like, hey, I'm still not comfortable. I'm still Mm. lacking in this department. Can you help me? And always ask for coaching and improvement Mm. in that area. And I kind of want to jump to a different kind of subject with Shell. Usually when I think of Shell, I think of like innovators, always think of the environment, all the kind of promotional stuff that you guys go through. I know you guys said that you are looking into reducing net carbon footprint. You're a big leader in this industry on that. What are you guys currently working on and things that you can Mm -hmm. share about how you guys are, you know, helping the environment? So you might've seen that we came out a few months ago with this ambition to be net zero emissions by 2050, mm-hmm. which you know we were the first to do so. And you know, in exploration, that scares a lot of my, my explorers, obviously, right? Because <laughs> we are the very front end of that chain. But when you break down that ambition, it's really important to understand some of the details around that. So if you look at GHG emissions, you can break them down into three different components. There's what we call scope one, which are kind of like, 
emissions that leaks from our plants. You know, the things that happen by accident or that the systems are designed to vent when we have safety issues, that sort of thing. So, you know, leaks that occur because we're operating an upstream facility or well or something like that. There's another element called scope two emissions. And those, that's the energy we consume in order to run our operations. And so when we run compressors, whether we electrify or diesel, how much energy and what are the emissions that result from there? And then there's scope three, which is the carbon intensity from the products that we sell to customers and then the ultimate, you know, combustion or, or whatever it is of those products. Scope one, the upstream part of that is well under 10% of Shell's carbon emissions, it's even well under 8% of our total net carbon footprint. That scope two, the power we use in our operations is something like 12 to 15, depending on where we are. But the vast majority of Shell's emissions comes from the products we sell to our customers. On that product line, we're working across different industrial sectors to look at sectoral decarbonization. So how do we help, you know, product lines and customers ultimately decrease the carbon footprint through different manufacturing of products, substitution, whatever it is. So there's lots of work going on there. On scope two emissions, which is, you know, say that 10 to 15%, we're looking at where can we partner renewables to run our, to provide the power to our plant. So in Australia, we've recently taken final investment decision on a solar plant that will power our compression stations in one of our areas. So yeah, we will, instead of drawing power out of the grid, which is largely coal-fired in Australia, we have actually, we will build a solar plant next to one of the gas plants and draw the power from that solar plant to run the compression stations. Um, That's really neat. (laughs) And then scope one, where I work in upstream finding stuff, if you look at the net carbon footprint of a barrel of oil from our deep water business, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico, that barrel of oil has the lowest end-to-end net carbon footprint of any barrel globally. And it's because of the natural reservoir depletion that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico. It's because of the high quality standards required from the facilities there. And in general, I think the quality of the operations that we execute. And so you know, when we say net carbon footprint, we can offset, you know, maybe some of these emissions if we see the need to continue to do them through other things like either buying carbon credits or more importantly, nature-based solutions where we get carbon credits and things like Mm -hmm. that. So again, where I was previously in Australia, we've already have two nature-based solution projects underway there to do that. But we're doing lots across all three elements of those in Shell to get to that net zero ambition. What I really like that you said is about the oil part and the offshore part and how that's kind of, that's one of your lowest carbon footprint emissions, which I'm sure when people saw that release, the first thing they thought of was like your offshore business or maybe even the Permian business that you have. And I know in the Permian, because it's being a part of next year, we actually, we work with y'all. Y'all do a lot of stuff to help reduce in the Permian as well. And it's very effective. So, you know, I really like that you, that you stated that. And I think that's great. So I guess the last question here so we can wrap up is on COVID-19. As you know, it's disrupted the industry, every industry. And what advice do you give for those that are currently in the industry or ones that are maybe graduating to come in and maybe they're second guessing themselves because of everything that's going on? What would you say is the future looks like? I think the future of the energy industry looks very bright. We still have a growing population globally that will need energy, right? And, you know, almost a third of our world population still lives in energy poverty. And so I think, you know, one of, again, being an exploration, my explorers worry that they're the first ones impacted by any reduction in this space. But 
couple things come to mind. So still, if you look at the ability for, you know, renewables to penetrate the global power market, we're still less than 20% of the global power is, is from renewables. And there are still certain sectors that, you know, the energy contained in a renewable electron still can't supply the power that's needed, nor can, you know, people afford to string power lines into the middle of very remote areas. So I do think there will be the need for, you know, hydrocarbon-based solutions for, you know, a substantial period of time, Shelf says, into the 2050s and 20s, 2060s. So I think, yeah, we will continue to see the need for those things. So the demand will still be there. People will start to travel again. Cars will start to drive again. Jets will start to fly again. The demand will recover at, at some point. But I think the other thing people don't also appreciate is the number of other skills that you get working in a major you know, industry like the oil and gas business. And, you know, I think about the project management, the appreciation for non-technical risks, the interactions with the community, for me, the working with foreign governments, and then, you know, the benefits that, you know, I think, you know, my family has seen by having the opportunity to move around the world has just been spectacular. And I think we're, you know, better off as people for having been a part of a global industry and seeing the diverse views of people in different countries and then bringing them back here to, you know, incorporate not just into our business, but into our lives. And so I don't think, you know, shying away from the industry now, yes, it might be harder to break in, but I think the benefits that you can bring to the industry and into, into yourself, you know, far outweigh the risks. So I'd say stick with it. And, you know, opportunities will come to people who are, you know, driven and really continue to seek them. So I do believe that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And, you know, I think what, what we learned from this episode is definitely kind of like what your grandfather said is you work hard and you persistent and you show up every day and like, look where you can get. Because I mean, like you came from the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania to yeah. going to Oman, getting a PhD, like all these things that happened throughout life that I'm sure, you know, at 18 years old, you were probably would have never thought you'd be here today. It's really cool to see. And I think you have a, such a great oil field story. And this is the kind of stories that I like where you didn't start from much, but you created your own future to be where you are today. And I think that's really inspiring. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And we appreciate you coming on our podcast. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. We really enjoyed it. Bye. <laughs>